Reverse logistics and returns are becoming a huge topic in supply chain. Join me on last week's episode as I talk to Rob from Inmar about this very, very hot topic in supply chain. If you want to listen to that episode, please visit letstalksupplychain.com forward slash season two dash episode 87 or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Let's Talk Supply Chain. My name is Sarah Barnes-Humphrey, and each week I bring you the top supply chain professionals in the industry. You will learn about best practices, new innovation, and most up-to-date information about supply chain. I believe that collaboration is the future of business, and I have designed this show to ensure you have all the information you need to succeed in business and in your supply chain. And now, a word from our sponsor. Like the products you manufacture, it is not unreasonable to expect the merchandise used to promote your brand to do so without posing risk to the recipients or the brand itself. Supply chain professionals can now play a leading role in protecting and growing their brand's reputation with the help of the Quality Certification Alliance. QCA is an independent, not-for-profit, 501c6 third-party accrediting and certification body dedicated to ensuring accountability throughout the promotional product industry supply chain. Visit qcalliance.org to learn more. Your brand is your organization's most valuable asset. Protect and grow it by aligning your values with QCA. Hello, and welcome back to Let's Talk Supply Chain. So I am finally taking a much-needed vacation and break to recharge and get ready to wind down the year and gear up for all the amazing things happening in 2020. Hopefully, I will see you next week in Chicago at Freight Waves Live, November 12th to 13th. And remember to take a selfie with me and tag Let's Talk Supply Chain on social for your chance to win one of 20 supply chain dictionaries. I love featuring women every single month on the podcast and on the blog in my Woman in Supply Chain series, but sometimes it is bittersweet because I don't know about you, but it just seems like the months are going by faster. Before I tell you who is joining us, let's get to the question of the week. So the question was posed by Catherine, and the answers are going to actually be used in an upcoming article, so stay tuned for that. The question was, what one essential piece of advice would you give a procurement professional who needs to prepare for a recession? So over on LinkedIn, we had some great responses. Irina Roska, build really strong relationships with your suppliers and make sure they truly understand your planning and procurement cycles. Ensure that your efforts are aligned, your data is clear, and always up to date. Um, Anthony says, trust your suppliers right from the very beginning and proper expectations, the appropriate terms and use, use a GPO on categories where applicable. Rondi Allen says, it's important to be strategic with your suppliers and work with them as partners. Over on Instagram, I've got the official DJC. What about advice geared towards students like myself looking to become supply chain professionals? Well, thank you. I think I went back to him and told him to look at a couple of the other episodes that we've done about careers. Thank you so much to everyone who participated this week. Remember, you can you too can get mentioned on an upcoming episode just by getting in on the conversation every single Wednesday on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you're looking for an, an expansion on any of those 
answers as well as more of the answers that came in over the week, go to Listener's Corner at letstalksupplychain.com. Now back to today's episode. So Nicole Vernkin, founder of OMX, an amazing woman in tech, is back on the show to take us through her journey to success. Last time she was on the show was late 2017. So you can find her last episode near the end of season one talking all about OMX and how she is changing the face of procurement. So let's get to know a little bit more about Nicole before we dive in. Nicole is the founder and CEO of Canadian tech company OMX, the OMX.com. OMX is a powerful procurement platform specialized in driving socioeconomic returns. The platform measures local spend and social economic impacts, including ESGs and other sustainability metrics. Previously, she led a global high-tech manufacturing business. Nicole is on the board of the Canadian Crown Corporation that performs government-to-government contracts between Canada and other countries around the world. She is a frequent technology commentator on CBC and columnist for Vanguard Magazine, focusing on technology. She was a dragon on CBC's Next Gen Dragon's Den, which was dedicated to early stage technology businesses. She was named Startup Canada's National Woman Entrepreneur of the Year in 2017 and received the Canadian Advanced Technology Peter Brogy Award for Next Generation Leadership. She also joined Gimlet Media's show The Pitch as the fourth investor for the 2018 season. She is on the board of the Canadian Chamber of Commerce and a Next Gen member of the Business Council of Canada, as well as the co-chair of the BCC's Task Force on Canada's economic growth. In 2019, she was named Startup Canada's Woman Ambassador of the Year. So welcome back to the show, Nicole. (laughs) Thanks, Sarah. It's great to be here. Yeah, so much has changed since the last time you were on the show. I think you were on the show December 2017. We used Skype. The audio quality wasn't the best. So I'm just super excited to have you back and also to have you part of the Woman in Supply Chain series. And, you know, just from following you, your business is booming and you're making huge waves in supply chain tech. So congratulations on that. Thank you so much. Although I have to admit, it doesn't always feel like huge waves. It sometimes feels a little messy because we're, we're doing so many changes and we're being very innovative. So I appreciate you saying that. Yeah, no. And you know what? Entrepreneurship and especially on the tech side is definitely messy. And I'm glad that you brought that up because sometimes people don't even even see that side of, you know, being innovative, being that entrepreneur and being in the tech industry, right? Exactly. And it's not even the side, it's the whole thing. And so I think that there's this misperception that if you fail, you're a failure and that's bad. But when you're really in it and you are being entrepreneurial, the whole process is constant failure where you have to just keep finding out truths and then making changes and making more changes. And so I think the more we can bring that to the reality for people that that truly is what the process looks like, the better. I am going to hashtag what you just said, truth, because I can tell you I fail, I think, on a daily basis, but it's about, you know, picking yourself up, moving forward and just getting shit done, you know? Totally. But it's not only that, it's that if you're not failing, you are not getting closer to the right solution, because if you aren't failing, you aren't you aren't getting the real reality. Like it's better, it's better in a sales process to get to a fast no and the reason for the no 
than to get to this constant maybe where they yeah. make you feel okay about yourself and and you don't feel like you're failing. But you know, it's it's not good for you or not good for the company that you're trying to build and sustain. It's better to get to a fast no, understand why, and then make change. Absolutely, especially with how fast everything is going, right? We need to be able to pivot really, really quickly and get right into that no and move past it, move forward, understand it. And um, it's better for everybody. It's better for the company. It's better for you. It's better for the customers. So I think you're totally right on that. But we we kind of got started without even hearing about your journey. So why don't you tell us about your journey, where you started and where you are now? Oh, boy. Okay. Uh, well, I was in manufacturing. So I actually worked in a family business. We were uh, manufacturing different components, primarily for the U.S. government. Um, and then I started my first startup in 2008 or nine, I think it was 2008. Um, and we were an offshore manufacturing business. So I was really involved in the day-to-day processes, um, of manufacturing and all the while that I was running that company, I had to do all of this reporting back to our our client in order and clients in order for them to provide the data and the reporting back to government on supply chain spend, um, our country of origin. So how much of the parts were made in a certain country and verification of the country of origin, et cetera, et cetera. So I truly felt the pain of how manual that process was, how people were often going through brokers and consultants to get it done. And so when I ended up selling my manufacturing business alongside our family business, I went out to start a software platform to automate the exact process that irritated me so much. Um, and so I started OMX uh, just over six years ago, really around this notion of just living in that niche and trying to automate that process. Um, and then we've since expanded a little bit wider into different sectors, but still really focused on what I refer to as regulated markets. Um, so selling to public sector, mining, energy, defense, aerospace, and some infrastructure. Um so really focusing on regulated markets because that process is particularly painful for them. Yeah, and that's how big ideas and new innovation kind of happens, right? You have a pain point yourself, you've lived through it for a couple of years, and then you're like, I am going to go and change it for everybody else after me. Yeah, and it's industry agnostic. I mean, I just invested in my friend's company um, because she's building these sheer pantyhose that don't rip. I know nothing about the pantyhose business. I never will. Um, but it's a problem that I have felt that hurts. And I know it's a problem. And so as an investor, you just, if you know there's a problem there, you just want it solved. And so I think it applies to absolutely everything. Absolutely. And I think I know who you're talking about with that pantyhose business. I've been, I've been watching them for a while. So being in a family business, you talked about having that family business. You didn't really talk about being in the family business, but you and I have spoken about this in length in the past um, because we, we have that connection in common. Can you walk us through what that part of the journey looked like? Oh boy, that was messy in its own right. Um, so I grew up in the family business in that my parents were um, both in it. My mother was the controller. My father was the CEO, but the engineer um, in the operation. So my whole childhood, I grew up around that business. It wasn't really a job 
job for them. It was their life. So, you know, a lot of our vacations we went on would be around going to visit a new customer or supplier. Like I remember spending a summer on an Aboriginal reserve in North Dakota because we were setting up a joint venture there. And so it just, it was so much of my life growing up. My, my parents ran that business for uh, 36 years. And um, when I got involved in it, it was, it had gotten very complicated. We had facilities and I think five different facilities and three different countries and um, our contracts were complicated and it had, it had grown and expanded pretty significantly um, to the point that when our customer, the U.S. government, needed to reduce their orders because of budget constraints, you probably won't remember this, but the, there was budget locked, sh- government shut down, and there was you know big changes um, happening a lot in the early 2000s. So when we had some stress there, we had to dramatically reduce our overheads and so I got involved at that point which was a stressful point of the business um, but it forced me to learn an awful lot and learn some of the really hard lessons about um, expense creep you know I always think back when I was going through line by line every expense we had at the business just how over 30 years you know the the Xerox machine expenses nobody pays attention to that kind of stuff ours were ballooning you know completely out of control for the size of business that we had just because it was something people didn't pay attention to so there was i got i got a really good early lesson in my career about about those types of things about getting into too many fixed overheads about you know some cut we had some customer concentration issues um et cetera et cetera and what i learned i mean i absolutely love manufacturing i still do i love going to factories seeing how things are made um, I love dealing with our suppliers. I felt like they were salt of the earth people. I grew up in a really small town, so I loved dealing with, with those groups of people. So I have a huge appreciation for the manufacturing um, community and industry, and I learned some of the really hard entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial lessons that I was fortunate to learn because I don't think too many people, I was in my early 20s when that was going on, so I don't think too many people would have gotten those lessons at such an early time in their life if they were mm-hmm. if it wasn't a family business so you know i was there while my father was making ceo decisions about cash flow and recapitalizing the business and um at, at one point we sold equity in the business so you know i was involved in those those discussions and those decisions at a very early age which was extremely helpful and i'm very very fortunate to have been through and i'm glad that i was involved during a time that wasn't all you know, apple pie and smiles and eat yeah. it was good that we were making hard decisions because that's where you learn. Yeah, no, absolutely. It sounded like it sounds like you got, uh, you know, just a really good education from it, just like I did. You know, there was the journeys are a little bit different, but I think some of the lessons learned from, you know, the decisions that are made as an entrepreneur um, at different stages of the business completely change as you grow, expand, you know, and, you know, sometimes go back to being smaller because of some circumstances that are in in your control and some circumstances that are out of your control as well. So how did you know that the tech space was where you were meant to be? Oh, I had no idea. Um, I, I just wanted to innovate the one area that I already knew about and the way that I thought of innovating was with with, tech, was with technology. 
I never said I want to be a tech entrepreneur. That was never something that came out of my mouth or was never a, a specific decision that I made. And so I just had some domain expertise in what I call a very strange niche and a very narrow niche. And um, I wanted to improve that niche that I understood. And so technology was part of the solution. I've since found out that technology is always only a part of the solution in the sense that it has to go alongside behavior change, culture change, and all these other changes in order for your user base to really embrace those changes. So it's not really just about technology all the time. And of course, we have amazing technology and my CTO is brilliant and his whole team. Um, but it's, it's, it's not the whole equation. Absolutely. And, you know, especially in traditional businesses, you know, like I come from the forwarding, the forwarding side of things where things have been traditional for a very long time. You know, new discussions are happening and people are starting to talk about it, but the actions are still slow to take, right? Because everybody has been used to doing something one way for a very, very long time. And I'm sure you've come across that as well. Mm-hmm, absolutely. So let's talk about being a woman in business. You know, have you faced any challenges? I know that, you know, especially on the technology side, it's kind of been male driven. Um, also, I think you said mining, you know, that's that's got to be male driven, that kind of thing. So, you know, what have been some of those challenges? Maybe even when you were in the family business, did you come up across anything? um it's a loaded question (laughs) i know i know it's a lot to unpack and i'm also going to ask you if you did have the challenge or maybe one specific challenge how did you overcome it because a lot of time my listeners they want to know the challenge but they also want to know how you overcame it Mm -hmm. look there there was absolutely a lot of challenges there you know i think the biggest especially for raising capital or being in those situations where you're trying to get people to believe in you and either invest or be the first customers. I think that you face, I always felt that I faced it because of my age, but of course it was also my gender. Um, so you get a bit of a credibility gap where you don't look and sound and feel like the people you're pitching to. And so they have a hard time with trust, I think. Mm -hmm. And that's, it's not, it's happening at the subconscious level. So it's, it can be very hard to, it can be very hard to overcome that sometimes. So, you know, a lot of these studies now about entrepreneurs raising early stage capital shows that, you know, most of the decision is based, most of the decision-making process that the investor goes through is based on deciding whether or not that they think that entrepreneur will make it. Right. Do they have the grit, the perseverance, the brains and the ability to influence clients? Now, at a very early stage, there aren't too many of their data points except the entrepreneur themselves. And Mm -hmm. what studies are also showing is that most investors tend to want to invest in people that remind them of themselves. Maybe they remind them of themselves when they were younger. And if most investors are men, probably 99% of major angel investments, somebody with the capacity to put in a check of at least 250 personally, um, most of them are men. Mm-hmm. And how, how could they ever see themselves in this, you know, young, energetic woman with a different sort of upbringing or background that maybe spoke differently or acted a little bit differently? And so I just think that there's a bit of a subconscious bias that is hard to well, look if you're a woman and there's a subconscious bias against women, it's impossible to change that. And so 
Mm-hmm. I I think I had a little bit of a hard knocks um, upbringing, especially from my mother, where it, there was you know no excuses were kind of allowed. And yeah. I'm not saying it's an excuse, but I I think I was brought up in this environment where I wasn't allowed to say, well, I didn't do it because, or there's no way that I'll be successful because, or any of those things. And so I look back at some of the conversations I had with them. And they would immediately shut me down if I ever inclined, if I ever insinuated that that was a reason I couldn't pitch or couldn't. And so I think I was lucky to have a bit of that that upbringing where I, I was always told that that didn't matter. Um, and so how I overcame it, I, I have no idea. I remember there being a lot of really hard, hard situations. I had some particularly hard situations with women, though. I mean, I had women in decision-making roles that uh, I heard that when I left the meeting, you know, they made fun of me. They called uh, my company the eyelash batting business at one point. And that person was a real decision maker within a real serious client that was going to be very important to us. So um, I also had issues with women. So I think that no matter what, when you're doing something differently, if you're a woman or a man or you're older or young or you look different or a different race, or you have a disability, or you just, maybe you're a bit strange. I don't know. But if you have, if you're doing something differently, you're probably not going to look and sound and smell and say the same thing as every single person right. that you're going to pitch. And so, and in fact, the likeliness is higher that you might think a little differently as a minimum. So my point is, you're always going to be exposed. You're always going yeah. to be made fun of. There's always something that you could feel insecure about going into a meeting. I mean, you can take this argument to the absolute extreme. So... I would say there's a few things. There's one, just being a woman in business. We'll just park that as like, that's a whole big conversation. But we are talking about innovation today. And there's a whole nother conversation around, um, yes, it's hard to be a woman and to pitch and to raise money and get customers. But I think it's hard to do that anyways. Yeah, it is. Yeah. there's There's also some advantages that you have to acknowledge as a woman, right? You do look and sound a little different. You do appeal to people in a different way. You you have other advantages where maybe you're less bullish on certain things. You know, investors are starting to see that women are more conservative and they tend to beat their numbers more often than men when they invest in them. And so there's also advantages um, to being a woman. So it's a really long roundabout way to just say that there was obviously a lot of roadblocks there was obviously moments where I wanted to give up, where I heard rumors of things, people bad-mouthing me from men and women or saying, you know, she's crazy or she'll never make it or any of those kind of things. So um, obviously all that stuff happened. How I overcame it, I, I because I had raised some money from family, friends, and angel investors, and, you know, you know this very well, Sarah, it's like once you start, you, you just don't have an option. You don't, right. you don't have the luxury of saying, oh, I'm so sad, I'm going to quit. Yeah. Um, and so it, that's that's what kept me going is I just kept telling myself well, it doesn't matter how upset I am or how degraded I feel or you know that you just don't have an option you just have to move around those people um, yeah. and yeah. so I just kept doing that and still today it ha- happens a lot less than I felt that it was happening in the earlier days but um, still today it happens every once in a while from men and women where I, you know, I get something that feels distinctly personal and um, it's, it's never, never gets easier. Like it still hurts. Yeah. Um, and so I think you just have to learn to 
just know that it comes with that, especially if you're doing something really different. Absolutely. And I think you brought up a good point. I think, you know, because men are majority the investors, there's a higher probability that men will find um, relatable qualities in each other. But it's only because they're because of sheer numbers. I think whether you're it doesn't matter who you are, you're still going to have challenges and you're still going to have to hunt and find that person that finds you relatable enough to invest in. Right. And so I think you make a really great point there. And I think there's a lot of really great advice that you gave in such a huge topic. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, yeah. um, I'll say, and I'll say one more thing. Um, when I was younger, I was always like a hung out with my dad a lot and, you know, played golf and did stuff with him and some of the boys. And I remember starting to become a woman in business and asking, you know, well, I guess I should start golfing. I, no one golfs anymore, but yeah. 15 years ago, they all did. <laughs> they and did. <laughs> I made a distinct decision that I was never going to try to be something that I'm not. Mm-hmm. Like, so no, I hate golf. Golf is the worst sport that's ever been invented. I absolutely hate it. Um, and so I just made a decision that I'm not going to try to be, I'm just going to own the fact, you know? So when I go to a board meeting and maybe some of the investors are talking about their golf game or something, you know, they also wouldn't do that, but, um, I'm not going to ever try to be something I'm not. Yeah. And I love that. And I, I also like the fact that you said that, you know, not only did the roadblocks come from men in your journey, they also came from women. And, you know, I think that we all need to get out of our own way, whether we're men or women, and you're going to encounter that no matter who you're talking to, um, because you're not going to get along with everybody, right? Not everybody's going to like you and not everybody's going to like your idea and what you're what you're doing. But as long as you're passionate about it, and like you said, there are days where I'm like you, you know, I, I almost want to quit. But at the same time, you know, I have this passion and this drive and this gut feeling that this is what I'm meant to be doing. And you just got to drive that forward and, you know, try to forget everything else and keep talking, keep talking to people, you know, meeting people, because that's the only way that you're going to do that. There are so many people on this planet. There's a lot of people to get through to find, you know, the right people for you and the right people for your inner circle. So just, you know, just a lot to unpack there. But um, I love some of your advice. So now, you know, we talked about challenges, but let's talk about highlights. What have been some of the major highlights in your career and how did you celebrate the wins? Oh, wow. I have to say I am horrible at selling wins. (laughs) I think I think we all are. I am so bad at it. In fact, it's so funny. I mean, one of my big highlights was years and years ago, not that many years ago, um, when we signed our first big client and they actually um, issued a press release about it. It was um, almost a $4 million contract and, you know, it was paid up front and um, it was very exciting and I worked on it for a couple of years. It was like a two-year sales cycle Um, and it really sort of took us from a struggling startup to the next stage. And I thought about the day, how I would feel the day that was signed, the day that the money hit the bank. I thought about that day for two years from the day I had the first conversation with them and all the legals we had to jump through and the many, many meetings. And, you know, it's a complex sale. You have to get multiple people internally on board. And so I remember thinking almost every day for two years, how it would feel when that came through. And you know how it felt? 
it felt exactly like the day before it felt. <laughs> yes. It felt the same. And, yeah. and, and I had planned on doing a little celebration um, the Friday of the week that it came in. And it came in on a Monday. And I was, you know, the whole team, we were going to go out for drinks uh, Friday at 5. And, of course, just like typical Nicole in my life, Thursday morning, you know, I get some, oh, well, there's some event going on here in Washington and fight on Friday. You know, I think I left. We forgot to even acknowledge that that was a big deal for us. And so, of course, we acknowledged it, but I didn't really soak it in well enough. But there's been, obviously, there's been many things like that. But because they take a while to materialize, um, so funny when they do happen it's almost like a given of course that happened because i've been thinking about it every day this long as opposed to a wow we should stop and think and really acknowledge um how big of a win that was yeah and i it's it's funny because i think we almost have to put just as much effort into the celebration as we do into you know getting that win for sure for sure and I, I think we kind of forget about that. I am I'm the same way as you. You know, I just keep plugging along and, and you know, something comes up, like you said, like a trip or something like that. And you you go to the next thing. But I think that, you know, we got to be a little bit more intentional about stopping to celebrate that win and go take that deep breath and go. Yeah, you know, like we did that, you know, that I, I think that it's super important. And a lot of people talk about it. I don't know about you, but I think for me, I really ought to be intentional about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good takeaway for me. <laughs> so the first time you and I met and I have to I have to thank you. OK, because the first time you and I met, we talked about public speaking and I was asking you how you got over your fear of public speaking. And you were like, I just did it. I just did it. And so every time I go to get on stage, I think I have you on my shoulder going, just do it. All you have to do is just get up and do it. <laughs> and so I have I have been putting one foot in front of the other since that day that I met you to overcoming that fear. And now I'm on stage almost once a month. Fantastic. That's yeah. great. Yeah. So thank you so much for that. Well, public speaking in particular, I find, is all about practice. So mm-hmm. that's what I meant by that. I mean, it's not like the Nike slogan, just do it. It's more public speaking in particular. Everyone's afraid of it that I've ever met. They're generally afraid of it, except for the ones that get a lot of practice. And so that's just one thing I'd say to any listener is that in, in that particular fear, I think it really just the more you do it, the more comfortable you get. Yeah, absolutely. I haven't done a keynote yet. I've um, I've done I've been more the moderator on stage, um, but you still got to do the intro and the outro on your own. And and uh, but I, I am getting there, and I'm telling you, you are on my shoulder. <laughs> so I think I I think my question out of that though is, how did you overcome it? And I think you kind of answered that. But was it just you know? you got the opportunity to speak on stage. Was it a keynote? You know, was it on a panel? And you just said to yourself, I'm going to do it. I'm just going to, you know, own that fear and get up there and do it. Yeah. And so with that, I, if I look back, I think, you know, when you get your first, you know, request to do some kind of keynote or something, I, I took it really seriously. I treated it like it was real work. Um, 
I hired a coach. I had I had two different coaches at two different points in time, probably three or four years ago. Um, so I hired a coach. I worked with somebody else on content. I even I even had somebody help me with designing the slides. And I started preparing almost a month before my first one. I, I don't do that now, but I started preparing almost a month before. Um, and I practiced ahead of time. So with the keynotes in particular, you want to really know your content. You want to you know get your timing down. There's, there's a bunch of different things that you learn. Um, and I'll just say that the best people and resources to learn good public speaking from are comedians. Not that you want to be funny. I'm not a funny person, so I don't try to be. But yeah. they have the timing down perfectly, and you see the way they deliver. So um, I think it's always a work in progress. But I'll just say that, yes, getting practice and, and practicing is definitely part of it because you get more and more comfortable the more you get up on stage and getting in front of 200 it ends up being the same as um, 10,000. It, it doesn't feel that different, to be honest. Um, mm-hmm. But I will, uh, I will say it takes a lot of work and um, it's all about preparation. So if you've prepared a lot, then I find you get a lot less nervous because you just, oh my God you know exactly what to say so that's not the worrisome part so i would say that it's a combination of all those things that if you really want to take it seriously then you got to put the time in up front yeah i would definitely agree with you on that one um but also you know just take that fear and throw it out the door and get up on stage and just start doing it <laughs> yeah that and I, I also think it's okay to be afraid i think yes you know, there's a lot of professional athletes that vomit before they get on ice or get out on the court or whatever you know i've heard of them and so i think it's fine if you feel nervous even to the moment you get up and the whole time you're up there and that just might be the way you might always be and that's fine too yeah totally okay because everybody to each its own and however you're going to do it just be you you know do you so usually on these episodes i ask for advice you know, for women in supply chain, or I ask for advice for the next generation in supply chain, but I want to ask you about supply chain leaders. So what advice would you give to other supply chain leaders about navigating everything given all that they have on their plate these days? Well, I think the biggest trend in supply chain is that when I first started working in supply chain in my manufacturing business, it was always sort of seen as a cost center and supply chain people were just told, take the bill of materials, find your suppliers and reduce your costs as much as humanly possible. And I remember my supply chain teams were getting bonus based on the percentage they could reduce our sourcing costs by. So I think that that was traditionally how the function was looked upon. The last 10, 15 years, the shift that I've been seeing and what we've been focusing on with OX is that the supply chain person the lead needs to be in the strategic discussions. They need to be operating at a VP level. They need to be um, privy to what's going on at the board and the most senior levels of an organization. And they need to be involved in the strategy. So for example, if your strategy is to take your solution and add this whole other form of tech, you know, maybe you want to switch your entire product to go into these light composites with some special material. Well, supply chain needs to be involved way ahead of time to be starting to secure some of those very innovative sources and partners and setting up agreements to work on that R&D together. Um, 
and there's lots of other examples where, um, you know, we're seeing a lot of our clients when they work on bids or they try to get a new mine approved or they try to get a big infrastructure project approved. You know, the actual bid evaluation will be based on the supply chain that's included in that bid. So that sometimes it makes up 10, 20% of the weighting in the evaluation. And so supply chain needs to be involved in pursuing that very large strategic sales opportunity as well. So I, I would just say my advice for the supply chain market um, women included, is that I think the more and more that your role, you can see your role as being strategic, the better. I think that's where the difference will be between a good supply chain person and an incredible one in the future. I think it'll be about having that strategic view on the whole organization. I would agree with you on that, especially now that the conversations have turned to, you know, how humans can work better together with robots. I think that creativity is really going to, you know, come to the forefront strategy. People are going to be given some some time back in their day to really focus on those two muscles that have maybe been dormant for a while because of all of the manual tasks and the overload of what they've had to deal with on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, for sure. And to get there, to your point, they have to embrace technology. And I guess that would be the other piece of advice is if you want to get ahead in your career, you gotta you gotta learn the latest technologies. You gotta learn how to use them, and yeah, they have unbelievable user interfaces now to make it very easy to use. So there's really no excuse. But I would say that if you're working with supply chain and you are not um, open to and using technology, I, I think you are not going to do very well in your career. Not in this day and age. Yeah, I would definitely agree. Well, this has been an amazing conversation. I just want to ask you lastly, you know, what's next for Nicole? What does the future look like for you? <laughs> well, I actually had that conversation with myself recently. Um, with and, yourself. I love and, it. <laughs> you know, like what, what, you know, I've been doing this for six years and what's, where is this going? And I think ultimately I, I will always be starting businesses. I just, I, I know that, so I think I'm going to keep growing OMX, obviously, um, but I think I'll always be in an entrepreneurial role. I get excited about um, getting things going and, and trying new things and innovating markets, so I will always be in that role. <laughs> All right. Well, I can't wait to see, and maybe that's something you and I should talk about, but... So celebrate your wins, tackle your fears head on, and enjoy the ride. I always enjoy chatting with Nicole, and I hope you found a lot of value and had a paper and pen ready. For more information about this episode, Nicole, and OMX, please visit letstalksupplychain.com forward slash season two dash episode 88. Nicole, thank you for coming on the show, and I wish you nothing but success in the next part of your journey. Thank you, Sarah. It's been great. This episode was produced in collaboration with Border Buddy, the most innovative online customs platform out there. And here is what Graham, the founder of Border Buddy, has to say. More and more companies are looking to expand their reach into global markets, but most don't know where to start or don't have the time to figure it out. Border Buddy sees the struggle and has found a way for you to integrate customs into your e-commerce site, allowing you peace of mind when selling to customers in other countries. Your customers will know exactly how much the costs are to import their order from you to their door in real time. And just imagine what that will do for your business and your sales. Visit us and sign up for 10% off your first clearance at borderbuddy.com 
slash let's talk supply chain. If you liked this episode, go and check out Nicole's episode in season one. And that's going to be wherever you listen to podcasts. Next week, I am talking to Cleo of Ashcroft Terminal, and they are making big waves and disrupting the shipping industry out on the West Coast of Canada. But they are working with global shippers everywhere. You're not going to want to miss that story. You're going to want to tune in. They are making an environmental impact. They are making an impact onto supply chain communities everywhere. So stay tuned and stick around for that episode coming up next week. So if you'd like to support the show, there's a few ways to do that. Follow us. Follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts as well as on YouTube, the SC Supply Chain TV. Next, go to ships.com. That's S-H-I-P-Z dot com. We should be in full beta by the time this episode airs. So if you're a forwarder or a shipper that wants to get in on the action and find out what we're doing to streamline all of your processes, then you're going to want to sign up at ships.com. Next, go to listener, uh, letstalksupplychain.com forward slash shop for any of the supply chain professionals in your life. We have got some funny t-shirts, some great sweaters, some accessories, and also we've got that supply chain dictionary that's 107 pages full of acronyms and definitions for you to use in your supply chain career. Next, go and rate and review the show and your review might be featured on an upcoming episode. Thank you so much for all your love and support. And remember everybody, ship happens.